So, Dale, I don't know how much you know about therapy, but it usually starts by you telling me a little something about yourself. I thought there'd be couches and Kleenex and shit. Look at me, son. It's not your fault. Do you want to talk about some of those feelings? I love you. Obviously, you don't know me. So how is this supposed to work? You sit, I sit, we talk. Hi, I'm Dr. Sam. And I'm Dr. Fran. Welcome to Freudian Scripts the podcast where we put your favorite TV shows and movies on the hypothetical couch and take a deeper dive into the way psychology is portrayed. We analyze the way therapy looks in entertainment, discuss the way psychological diagnoses are portrayed, and break down other psychological themes seen on our screens. As a reminder, Freudian Scripts is for informational and entertainment purposes only. Please consult your mental health professional with any questions and seek care if needed. The content and clips in today's episode will contain explicit language and mature and adult themes. As a content warning, we will be discussing suicide and self-harm in today's episode, which may be a difficult topic for some listeners. If you or someone you know is struggling with or at risk for suicidal ideation, you can get help by calling the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is available 24 hours and in English and Spanish at 1-800-273-8255. Hello and welcome Freudian Scripters. Today we are discussing an important topic that we haven't yet covered on the podcast and we wanted to highlight around March, which is Self-Harm Awareness Month. We realize we missed the boat a little bit as March 1st is Self-Harm Awareness Day, um, but we are really excited to still be bringing attention to this important and sensitive topic. And we will be putting sharp objects on the couch today. What if after you die, part of you goes to heaven, part of you stays here? Wind gap. There was a murder there. Another one's missing now. Get me a story. Hi, Mama. Goodness, I didn't expect you. The house is not up to par for visitors. I'm just in town on business. What kind of person does that? Hurt a child. Doesn't help anything. Riling folks up. You got two mutilated girls on your hands. Someone else is doing the riling. When you're here, you're my daughter. Everything you do comes back on me. I didn't come back to cause any problems. I can tell. You hate this place like me. Someone in this town's hiding something. Mama says I need to be careful around you. That true? Are you dangerous? Sharp Objects is an HBO miniseries based on the novel of the same name by Gillian Flynn. It stars Amy Adams as Camille Preaker, a crime reporter who appears to have a history of alcohol substance use disorder and self-harming behaviors. Camille returns to her hometown of Wingate, Missouri to investigate the murders of two young girls. However, upon arriving at her childhood hometown, she finds herself once again under the critical eye of the town and her mother, Adora, who is played by Patricia Clarkson. While home, Camille is forced to confront her past while investigating these murders. Yes, and this is another, I feel like we've done a lot of film adaptations from books, yeah. and this is one that Dr. Sam and I have both read. Um, and like many things, we, yes. you know, spoiler alert, think the book is more interesting and intriguing and better than the TV show. But for anyone who's a Gillian Flynn fan, like I am, you know, Gone Girl, um, this is another one of her, her stories come to life in the form of a HBO miniseries. Exactly. And I think, you know, with Gillian Flynn, as you've come to expect from her novels and her stories, there usually are some kind of like psychological like themes and topics to be discussed. Lots of twists and turns. And this one is pretty dark. And like we mentioned in the beginning, does cover some very like serious and potentially difficult topics for some people. Um, and we're really going to be discussing sharp objects and these psychological constructs through the lens of Camille. Yes, she is our main character, and we probably could spend an entire episode on multiple different characters, but we will hone in on mostly Camille and her relationship with her mother throughout today's episode, highlighting a few different themes. Um, So generally, some background on Camille. Dr. Sam gave a nice overview, but we do notice pretty early on that she's engaging in these different behaviors that we might anticipate or hypothesize is some kind of coping mechanism for dealing with a lot of distress or a lot of, you know, kind of emotions, especially about returning home to what seems to be this like kind of difficult environment for her to be in. Yes. And we don't really know what has happened to Camille. We don't really know 
if anything Camille is having trouble or struggling with. Um, but we do have some hints. So when her boss, Mr. Curry, sends her initially to Wind Gap to cover this story, he kind of, uh, we hear him talking to his wife about how he's doing this to kind of help her process and handle things. Look, she's a great investigator, could be a great writer, maybe even have a life, but she needs to deal with her issues. Stop thinking that vodka doesn't stay on her breath. And we do get a sense that there is something or some reason or some person that is keeping Camille from wanting to return to Wind Gap. Um, Definitely something she's not looking forward to. Um, We see her in her very scant luggage that she packs for the trip. It's really just like a plastic bag filled with mini liquor bottles and a couple changes of clothing. Yeah, and we see once she arrives at Wind Gap, and we get the sense that this isn't behavior that's limited just to being in Wind Gap, that it's probably gone True. on for a while and back home. However, it seems to be exacerbated um, and kind of accelerated when she's in Wind Gap. So pretty early on, like Dr. Sam mentioned, she's bringing a bunch of mini liquor bottles. She's engaging in a lot of substance use behavior. She's engaging in these substance use behavior while driving. Um, She's, you know, engaging in reckless driving at times, like driving, um, you know, high above the speed limit when she's really upset or really dysregulated. Um, We kind of see like these different ways in which like her difficulty with managing all the emotions that are coming up around being home and being exposed to whatever it is that she's dealt with in Wind Gap are kind of like coming out. Definitely. And we see, you know, when she's in Wind Gap, she's frequenting like I, it seems like the one bar that they have in the town. Um, we see that she is often making return visits to like a little corner shop or maybe the liquor shop to get vodka, which she pours into her Evian water bottle and carries around with her so that when we see she's like in high pressure, or high stress moments, she's kind of drinking from that bottle or going to refill and get more alcohol. Um, so definitely seems that alcohol is one of the main things that or drinking alcohol is one of the main things that she's doing to kind of cope with unpleasant or distressing emotions, especially like in a really trying time. Um, She doesn't seem comfortable back home. There have been the murder of two girls. She is having um, constant flashbacks, which we'll get more into. But on top of the flashbacks and the things that she maybe has previous experienced, she also, you know, comes across the body of a young dead child once she's back home. So just a lot of really not easy things to cope with. And she has it seemingly turned to alcohol to do so. And we see, we learn pretty early on um, at the end of the first episode, this is not a huge spoiler, but there is another way that Camille, at least in the past, has seemed to cope with intense distressing emotions, and that's through self-harm or non-suicidal self-injury, which we'll discuss a lot more. Um, For Camille, it presents in kind of this unique way, which I think, of course, is like, like Dr. Sam and I were kind of talking before this is very hyperbolic of mm-hmm. we learn that she not only is engaging in self-harm, but in the past has carved specific words into her skin and kind of all, all over um, all the non-visible parts of her body. And we'll get a little bit more into self-harm, as Dr. Fran mentioned, um, but it is interesting to note that, you know, some of the behaviors that we see Camille engage in might be what we expect from people who also engage in these types of behaviors, whereas others are not so um common. I'm not going to say they don't happen, but aren't as common. And so definitely the way that we see most of her body covered, um, in particular with words, like it seems like I think all of her self-harm behavior has been in um, kind of causing scarring that spells out words all over her body. Um, That is not so typical. And we do see some flashbacks to this isn't kind of a new behavior. In fact, you know, we don't even get much of a sense that she's currently engaging in these behaviors, even though she does have urges and you see her potentially going to engage in this behavior and then stopping herself. It seems to have been um, going on for a long time. We've, there's references that this might have been going on when she was an adolescent, still living in Wind Gap. And then we also see some flashbacks to her being at an inpatient hospitalization um, after cutting her arm. Um, and that, that may not have been the only time she's been inpatient for self-harm behaviors. Yes, definitely. I believe like we see in some of the flashbacks, um, there's a scene where Camille starts bleeding um, because she has um, engaged in self-harm behaviors and written the word cherry on her leg. So we definitely get the sense that it started in high school. Um, And then later she makes a comment um, to her roommate at the inpatient psychiatric hospital that she's staying at that she hasn't been able to wear like dresses since college. So we do get a sense that like, you know, the behavior started in early adolescence, high school definitely continued and maybe was exacerbated throughout college um and then at least she tells her mother and we don't see in the 
in the show while we watch that she's currently engaging in his behaviors, but we're not really sure necessarily when they stopped. Um, the scene that Dr. Fran just mentioned, um, this episode actually in particular is where we do see several flashbacks of her engaging in some pretty severe self-harming behavior. Um, so the first one, we don't know really what spurred it, but she's in the car and she uses a razor blade to cut into her forearm and then goes and gets treatment um, related to that injury. And then while she is admitted, we see that she develops a close relationship with a young woman um, who is her roommate at the facility, uh, who also seems to be struggling with very similar difficulties and engaging in self-harm behaviors as well, and also having a lot of difficulties with her family relationships similar to Camille's. Yeah, and so we see that there seems to be a correlation between Camille being in really high distress or really struggling to manage an emotional reaction to like her friend, you know, dying by suicide in front of her, um, that she then engages in self-harm. And we'll talk a little bit about what the function of that behavior might be. And that is pretty accurate in terms of like how self-harm behavior might function in that way to temporarily try to relieve pain or distress in that moment. And so we see self-harm on Camille's body. We see kind of the evidence of that throughout the TV show. We've been talking about self-harm and non-suicidal self-injury, but really what is that, Dr. Fran? Yeah, so um, we'll kind of maybe switch to calling it an NSSI or non-suicidal self-injury. That's our kind of like more clinical official term um, moving forward. So we think of NSSI as being some type of intentional harm to one's own body without suicidal intent. So that's why it's NSSI, non-suicidal self-injury. Um, so examples might be cutting, burning, scratching, banging, or hitting. Um, and typically we might see that people use more than one method for NSSI, not just um, specifically one. Um, so that's kind of how we would define that. And it's really important. Um, One of the big myths around NSSI is that it is an indicator of suicidality. And while those can be correlated and can go together, it's not automatic that someone who is engaging in NSSI is automatically suicidal or um, that those things always go together. So that's a really important distinction. And we don't get as much of a sense in the show for if Camille is experiencing suicide ideation. So really, we focused a lot more on the NSSI piece. Exactly. And throughout the show, as we often mention, we don't really get to talk to Camille about her feelings, what her intent is, why she's doing this, what makes it more difficult or, you know, kind of get that full information. There is a scene where Emma tries to ask Camille about like, what does it feel like? Why do you do that? Um, And even in those scenes, we don't get much information from Camille. She's more worried about just kind of protecting Emma and kind of warning Emma against like engaging in similar behaviors. I didn't know about you. I'm sorry. I I was mad. Did it hurt? Because I I know a girl like you. Not like you. She says it, it doesn't hurt because the cut's already there under the skin. Enough just lets it out. Your friend sounds like an after-school special. Do you have my name on there? I don't do names. Um, So who is most likely to engage in non-suicidal self-injury? So like we see with Camille, it is most common among adolescents and young adults. So, you know, like we saw with Camille, starting when she was a teenager up and through, she said, her college years. um, And it typically does start around the ages of 13 or 14. So again, very in line with what we see in Sharp Objects with when Camille starts engaging in non-suicidal self-injury. Mm -hmm. And another interesting piece is that there are equivalent rates actually among men and women. Um, So we might typically associate certain types of self-harm behavior with men versus women, and we do see some gendered differences um, in the methods used. However, equivalent there are equivalent rates of um, some type of engagement in NSSI across uh, men and women. Another interesting piece is lifetime rates um, in you know adolescents and young adult populations are 15 to 20 percent. So that's quite a high number of individuals who have engaged in this behavior at some point. That's not to say that it's continuous or long term or you you know, occurring as often as maybe it has for Camille in her past. But this is something that quite a few adolescents and young adults have dealt with at some point in their lives. And like we mentioned, we're not exactly sure what maybe led to um, Camille engaging in non-suicidal self-injury. And again, it probably is a plethora of factors. There's never just like a one like cause and effect kind of reason for why these behaviors might occur. Um, But we do know that non-suicidal self-injury most commonly functions to temporarily alleviate very overwhelming negative emotions. Um, So really intense negative emotions that the individual feels like they can't really cope with or handle um, in any other way. 
they will turn to engaging in these types of behaviors. Um, and this might actually lead to them feeling more calm, a sense of relief, um, as opposed to experiencing the negative emotion that they're trying to escape. Yeah, and that's absolutely what we find in the research to be one of the most common functions of NSSI. And I think the keyword there is temporary, right? Yes. So that it might, for that moment, decrease that, um, you know, alleviate that distress in that moment, and then it comes back, right? And then it develops and actually has like other negative consequences. Um, we there are some other functions of NSSI that have been shown in the literature or the reasons people might engage in this behavior. Um, so some people report that they self injure as a form of anger directed at their themselves or as self-punishment. So we might see a correlation between someone who has a lot of self-criticism or really negative self-talk and individuals that engage in NSSI. And I would say we see this a little bit for Camille. And again, it's not like someone might only have one of these functions going on, but there might be an interplay. Um, and we do see that Camille seems to have some a lot of negative thoughts about herself. Of course, we're not interviewing her, but we get that impression. And some of the things that she ends up writing on herself seem to potentially correlate with negative things that other people have told her or that she thinks about herself. Yes, I could definitely see that. Um, a third function of NSSI that we can also see or has been found in the literature is that people may occasionally engage in this behavior in order to produce a physical sign of the emotional distress that they are feeling on the inside, um, kind of as an indication to others of how distressed they are. Um, however, I do want to point out that a common misconception is that people who engage in NSSI are doing this primarily for attention or to get reactions from others. We know that that is not true. Um, so it is true that while people might engage in this behavior um, related to interpersonal functions, so if they're, you know, distressed in a fight with their mom, having... Um, uh, something really negative happen in their personal lives, they might engage in these behaviors. Um, but it isn't to kind of get attention or to be attention seeking. And like we see with Camille, she actually is very um, almost ashamed of her her scars. She's always wearing like full pants, like sweaters. She doesn't want people to see. She describes having trouble with intimacy and being close to others because she doesn't want them to see. I think at one point she says to her mom, like, well, no one will ever really fully see me or know me in that way because of my scars. Um, so she is is kind of in very much the opposite, like trying to hide them and does not want any attention brought to them. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really good point. And so in terms of we may not ever know why Camille is engaging specifically in NSSI or self-harm behaviors. And but what we do know, what we do get more information on at least is what are the difficult experiences that Camille has had that might lead to some of these difficult um, emotions that she's having around being back in wind gap and kind of generally kind of of emotion regulation um, and kind of managing distress. And as we get to know more about Camille, especially in the context of these flashbacks that she is having throughout the series, um, we do see that there seem to be several instances of trauma that she has experienced. Um, so the first big one that we see is she's kind of for lack of a better word, and I think in the TV show, like literally haunted um, by her sister's death. There's a lot of like really quick, um, like split screens of like her dead sister kind of standing in the mirror, standing in different corners of the room, very creepy in the TV show. Um, and she has a lot of flashbacks about um, mostly positive scenes that she had with her sister, like remembering her sister in a fond way. And then also flashbacks of seeing her sister very ill and then her sister's funeral after she passes away. Um, so something that was very difficult for Camille, um, the people of Wind Gap and her family constantly make comments about how her sister died and she never really was able to cope with it or kind of process it appropriately. And unfortunately, that's not the only difficult experience Camille seems to have in childhood or beyond. Um, she, it seems like during high school, I believe, um, we get illusions and then it seems to be confirmed later in the show that she was sexually assaulted in the woods, potentially by several of her male peers. Um, and that that's something that never was dealt with or, um, really acknowledged by anyone and that she's never had time to process that if she, in a way that, um, might be helpful for her. I was going to add just to the sexual assault in the woods, like this is something that we also see kind of, I think what is typical for Camille, it appears, is kind of avoidance, you know, like she doesn't want to kind of process or discuss her sister's death. She really won't talk about her sister. Um, and with the sexual assault, it doesn't seem like she's really shared this with anyone, like what happened to her. Um, and she kind of brings it up in a nonchalant way to Detective Richard when she's telling him about past crimes in the city and maybe like alludes to the fact that it might have been her. But as soon as he asks, she kind of backs off. Um, and later, one of the perpetrators 
attempts to apologize for his um, participation in this um, assault. And she, again, tries to very flippantly, like, blow it off. And we can kind of see that that's her way of coping with it. She's not really ready to process it or um, even acknowledge it yet, it appears. And we've talked before about how avoidance is really common um, as a trauma reaction. And, of course, in the moment, it feels easier to not talk about it and to not cope with it. Um, We'll talk later in the episode about how it would be really beneficial for Camille to be in some therapy. And I think this would be one thing, all the different traumas that she's dealt with to be able to address in a safe space versus trying to cope with all of this on her own. A major theme we see with Camille is the use of what we might call maladaptive coping strategies. So we see that she uses alcohol, sometimes other substances. We're seeing a big trend of the avoidance. And even in the non-suicidal self-injury, in a way, that's its own type of avoidance of the emotional distress and kind of replacing it with a different behavior or different feeling. So we are definitely getting a pattern for Camille in this way. And the last trauma that we alluded to earlier, we discussed earlier, was when Camille, I guess, in a way, witnessed and then found the roommate that she had in the inpatient hospital after she had died by suicide and was very naturally distraught by that as well and also has a lot of flashbacks about that young woman. Yeah, absolutely, especially because this seems to be maybe, at least from what we see from the TV show, one of the first kind of close relationships she's developed since maybe leaving Wind Gap and maybe since losing her sister, if we're kind of giving some hypotheses here, and then she loses this person in a very difficult way. And that's really hard for her to cope with, understandably. Definitely. And this is just kind of like a total like hypothesis or something I'm just now thinking of as we're talking about this. But I think in a way, like, I wonder if Camille almost saw herself in this young woman, like, you know, this young woman is younger than she is, um, is also engaging in the non suicidal self injurious behaviors, um, and then is really struggling to connect with her mom. And so on the day that she dies, she actually asked Camille, like, you know, does it ever get better? Like, does it get better with your family? And Camille says to her, No, but you survive. And unfortunately, this young woman did not. So I think I think it just really hits um, Camille um, really hard. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of family, I think that's a good transition into talking about Camille's family. Yes. Um, And it is very complex, and we do not have time to get into all of the complex family dynamics, but we do want to spend a little bit of time talking about Camille's relationship with her mom. And, you know, even as mental health providers, it's hard not to pass judgment on Adora as I watch this show. Um, it's very easy to, you know, pass a lot of judgment on her and be very critical of how she treats Camille because there are a lot of things that she says and does to Camille that seem to very, like, impact her um, in a really big way. And so we do want to, like, kind of talk about that, but also recognize that, like, we'll get to some things that Adora might be dealing with, too. Yeah, definitely. I agree with Dr. Fran. It's hard. Like, Adora is not made to be a likable character. You know, spoiler alert, but if you're listening to this session, I imagine that you've watched the show or read the book, Um, but Adora does kill her youngest child. So we find out later that Adora killed Marion. Adora as we'll go through a little bit more in detail, says some very unkind things to Camille. Um, and she doesn't present as naturally very warm or maternally, um, except in a couple of instances, which we'll also get into. So, you know, she's definitely not painted or developed to be a likable character, but we will discuss kind of the relationship she has with Camille. Um, and then we'll talk a little bit about some things in her background that might have played a part in her developing um, some of the things that we see going on with her. Yeah. And so the sense that we get um, from at least the adulthood Camille, the adult Camille and adult Adora is that um, we do get some flashback scenes where we kind of see just a distance between them. Um, You know, we see some flashbacks of Adora being pretty like loving and caring and maternal towards Marion, but then kind of cold and distant, especially um, one scene that really sticks out to me is when they're at Marion's funeral. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, Camille tries to seek support from mom and kind of goes over and tries to cuddle with her and mom just gets up and walks away. And thinking about like a teenager who has just lost her sister trying to seek support from someone and then them kind of taking that support away. um, You can imagine the impact that might have on a teenager. And we hear Camille make comments about how she'll never be able to live up to or be as good as Marion, partly because Marion is dead um, and, you know, died at such a young age and just at this, like, perfect state in her mother's mind. And then we hear Camille make statements about how she is, like, bad. So it's kind of very much like Marion good, Camille bad. Um, we get the sense that that was her experience as a child, um, either through, like, her own experiences or the way that um, Adora did treat her at different times. 
I think this would be a good chance to just briefly listen to mom kind of explain in her own words. So hearing Adora kind of talk to Camille about why she never really got as close to her. But that's what I wanted to apologize for. You can't get close. That's your father. And it's why I think I never loved you. You were born to it, that cold nature. I hope that's some comfort to you. This is another clip that really stands out to me. And again, it's so hard not to pass judgment on Adora of, you know, like we can understand that she maybe had this experience in the past that made it difficult for her to bond with Camille. And that's not Camille's fault as a child, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That we would still want a child to be treated in a loving and caring and supportive way, regardless of their temperament or, um, you know, the background. And so it's just like really heartbreaking and you can really feel for Camille in scenes like this throughout the show. I think it also shows like poor insight on Adora's um, part because throughout the show, we hear Adora talk about her own like, mother and how she may have been like physically and emotionally abused by her mother and then in this scene she's just kind of like well it's really because you were like your dad and that's why i could never love you so you know i feel like it kind of is passing the blame a little bit and kind of also having some of that avoidance and not really having great insight and i think as we dive a little bit further into some of adora's actions we'll see that there could be poor insight in a lot of ways um but you know very hard for Camille, who has always struggled to connect with her mom, and then her mom to just finally say, like, that's why I've never loved you. <laughs> not not a nice scene. And like Dr. Sam mentioned, you know, mom does eventually allude to and disclose that she has her own history of abuse, and we don't know the extent of that. My mother, you never did know her like I did. Once, Joya woke me in the, in the dead of night. I was seven, eight. She didn't say a word to me. She just shook me away, walked me outside, barefoot in my nightgown. I knew better than to open my mouth when Julia was punishing me. It was the same whether I'd done something wrong or not. She drove me to the woods, walked me in deep, sat me down, and left me. It took me hours, you know. When I finally made it, I walked in that door and my mother said, you're home. I believe if you had asked her, she would have said what she was doing was right. We all have bad childhoods. At some point, you have to forget it, move on. Anything else is just selfish. And we also know that that can, for some individuals, make certain aspects of parenting more difficult, especially that combination of having an abusive um, history combined with maybe Camille did have, you know, some type of temperament that made it a little bit more difficult for Adora to bond with her. And so, you know, we can kind of recognize and empathize with that. And at the same time, like hope that this family could work on finding better ways of interacting and communicating so that Camille's not constantly feeling unloved, unappreciated, and Adora's not feeling, you know, however she's feeling in response to Camille. Yes, and I agree with you. We don't really know the extent of what happened to Adora. There's a couple of stories we hear, like Adora's mom pinched her, left her in the woods to find her way home, um, and really just also did not seem to present as being very warm. Um, And so I think in this way, you know, she has a history of abuse. And then as we've discussed in previous sessions and in other instances, sometimes when people have their own experiences of abuse, this might lead to them having difficulties with coping or regulating their emotions or engaging in abuse towards others. And so we do kind of see this come full circle with Adora. And so one of the big revelations of the show is that Adora has what they call Munchausen's by proxy disorder, um, or the technical name and actual diagnosis is fictitious disorder imposed on another. And you all are very lucky listeners because this is very, very rare disorder, which we'll actually talk about. And Dr. Sam has had some experience in this area. So um, it'll be really interesting to kind of dive a little bit more because this is, I think, another like pretty popular portrayal of mental health that we see. And like a lot of things we've covered, like psychopathy, dissociative identity disorder, it's very often like exaggerated or not portrayed in the most accurate way um, on the screen. But for some reason, like 
media just loves it and eats it up and finds it very interesting and fascinating. Yeah, very true. And, you know, when we think about why this might be something that's so intriguing, I think like when we've talked about true crime type stuff in the past, it's like there's this incongruence and this difficulty understanding. So when you see a mother harming their child, when this is like the antithesis of what you would expect, it seems to fascinate people. And so we've seen an uptick of uh, Munchausen's by proxy, as they call it oftentimes in TV and the movies. I think that's also even a kind of more like fancy sounding name than the technical diagnosis. So that's the one they usually use. Um, But I feel like there are a lot more shows and movies um, that kind of dive into this. Also, a big component of this disorder, as we'll get into, is the deception and the secrecy related to it. And I think that also makes for intriguing um, TV and movie. And so maybe we could start by just talking a little bit about what the formal, you know, factitious disorder imposed on another. What does that actually mean? So People with this disorder produce or fabricate symptoms of illness in others under their care. So usually, like we see, this can happen between parents and their children, an individual and an elderly and adult, or a disabled person that they're taking care of. And we can also see this happen between individuals and their pets. But most often, we do see it occurring between mothers and their children. We can see it in fathers, but it's not as common. And we are mostly seeing that these mothers who are engaging in this behavior are intentionally harming their children in order to receive attention. And that's why this diagnosis is not given to the victim. Like, we wouldn't say, like, Camille or Emma or Marion have this just disorder, but it's rather to the perpetrator of this action. So that's why it's this imposed on another. Individuals themselves can also have factitious disorder when they're fabricating their own symptoms and their own illnesses. But in this show, and the way we usually see it, is Adora has factitious disorder imposed by on another because she is intentionally making her children ill in order to care for them and receive that attention. And I think that's an important point. And thinking about the by proxy that we've typically heard is changed or is, you know, reflected differently in the formal diagnosis of imposed on another. Um, so that being like a distinction there. Um, and, and, you know, the other piece Dr. Sam was mentioning that's important is that there's not necessarily a secondary gain or something that they're getting out of this. Like they're not doing this to get financial benefit or, you know, any kind of other like tangible benefit. Yes, and that's a very important distinction. So it's actually very tricky when we're making these diagnoses because you really have to think about the symptoms and then the motivation for these symptoms. Um, You've heard Dr. Fran and I mention like malingering in the past. So that would be more in line like if a parent was maybe having their child feign symptoms or um, fabricating symptoms, let's say because they were in a car accident and they're trying to settle like a lawsuit. So that would be more malingering because the motivation is very conscious and the symptoms. In factitious disorder, the motivation, even though it's more of this kind of like wanting to be in control, wanting to get intention from the child or from the healthcare providers, it's much more on an unconscious, like psychological level. Um, so the symptoms, the behaviors they're engaging in, they're aware of those, but they're not really aware of their motivation or like this like very tangible secondary gain or like a reward. That makes sense. And so we hear through the show that Adora is hypothetically diagnosed with Munchausen's by proxy, or that's the hypothesis. And that's kind of what we're going along with and, you know, kind of seeing how well does that map on to what's portrayed for factitious disorder imposed on another. And there are several criteria that someone would have to meet in order to have that diagnosis. Yes. So there are four main criteria. So the first one is that there is this falsification of physical or psychological symptoms or injury or disease in another. So and this is often associated with an identified deception. So those are all kind of like a lot of fancy ways and fancy words to basically say that there is this, um, you know, for lack of a better word, kind of like fake symptoms or fake illness that are being brought on by another person. So we see this with Adora. Um, These methods can be just like exaggeration of symptoms or flat out false and inducing symptoms. And we do see with Adora, it's kind of a mixture. When Emma is first feeling a little bit sick, she's like kind of becomes very maternal, very wanting to care for her and says like, oh, you're sick, let me help you. But then she starts to kind of want to highlight the symptoms. She's kind of exaggerating them. And then we see she starts to feed her quote unquote medication, which is some kind of potion poison concoction that she creates to induce physical illness and further symptoms in her children. So definitely meeting for that first criteria. And the way she does it is very, you know, eerie and scary, right? Because it's like the sicker Emma gets, the more she gives her the medication, which we learn is what's making her sick. And so it's kind of like this negative, this like continuous loop. Definitely. Very cyclical. Um, The second criteria is that the individual presents another individual who, in this case, is the victim or the child um, as 
to others as being ill, impaired, or injured. And so we do find out, you know, that with Marion, she saw many doctors. She had many symptoms. Um, they always kind of refer to her as just a very sick child, so it doesn't seem like there was necessarily a diagnosis, right? We also see that with Emma, um, that she is being told that she's sick. And we even see in the town, like the... Sh- the sheriff, I guess he is, or the chief. We see the chief, once he's told, like, Emma's sick, it even kind of rings a bell in his head, and he's, like, sick, you know? Like, there definitely is this presentation of the child as being sick. And, you know, this isn't directly portrayed in the show, or, you know, maybe this is going on in the town anyway, but there might also be other ways that the person is kind of drawing attention to the fact that the child might be ill, like, whether it's through social media or talking a lot to their friends about how they have to stay home and take care of the child, that those might be some things that also would go on that would fit with this criteria definitely taking the child to lots of doctor's visits various doctor's visits you know those kind of things um and then the third criteria is deceptive behavior is evident even in the absence of the external awards that we talked about so you know adora is not telling people that she's giving her children this like poison potion that she's creating she's not telling people about her behavior so like we mentioned she knows that she is engaging in these behaviors and trying to make her children sick Um, but there's also this like lack of insight into like necessarily why she is doing it and then the fourth criteria like a lot of other diagnoses is that the behavior is not better explained by another mental health condition Um, and that's not to say someone with factitious disorder imposed on another can't also have other mental health conditions, but that that's not the only or primary reason driving the behavior. Exactly. Like this behavior is very much like for this attention to present this child as ill or to make this child ill. Um, and so there are some symptoms um, and kind of like warning signs that we can see that people with factitious disorder imposed on another um, can have or things to kind of be on the lookout for you know, you can say. Um, And we definitely see these with Adora. Um, So the first one is that there are reported symptoms or behaviors that aren't always congruent with observations. So, you know, this is like a parent saying, like, my kid is throwing up all the time, or they're feeling really sick, or this and that. And then when they present to the doctor in front of other people, other people aren't really seeing it. So it's they're kind of like that exaggeration, kind of talking about symptoms that may not be there or may not be there yet, if they're going to do something to like induce these symptoms. Another warning sign we might see is a discrepancy also between the reports of the child's medical history and the medical record. Um, So we do see this kind of reflected with Marion's medical record and Jackie, the kind of like family friend, which side note, this is very frustrating that she has potentially known this was going on and could have either stopped it or protected Emma or just like, why didn't she do something about it sooner? But I digress, that there is like multiple providers and providers even have had red flags about what was going on with Marion and there's all these discrepancies um, over all over the medical record. Yes, and this was something I will say, like working in settings where I've worked with, um, you know, physically and psychologically ill children, um, that one of the biggest red flags that we will sometimes see are children who have been to many different doctors, specialists, hospitals, kind of jumping around um, with a lot of different diagnoses or kind of diagnoses that don't match up or um, physical presentations or symptoms that don't really match up with what we might expect based on physiology, like based on the body. Um, So these are things that we definitely kind of can raise flags. Um, And we do see like, you know, extensive medical assessments that don't necessarily identify uh, an explanation for the reported problems. Um, I think we definitely see this with like Marion. Everyone talks about how she was very sick. Um, There's like the nurses and Jackie, they talk about all the different symptoms she had, but it's kind of like this cluster doesn't really make sense. Maybe it doesn't really map onto a diagnosis. And I'm not saying that with other children who that might also be the case that that means that this is factitious disorder imposed on another. Um, But that is something we can see with this. I think the best kind of highlight of this is when we see Detective Richard go and talk to the nurse and she describes kind of like the history of what happened with Marion. So we can kind of give a quick listen to that. What did she die from? That's the thing. She got passed around. Different doctors, different diagnoses. Crohn's, heart palpitations, respiratory issues, gastrointestinal issues, renal issues. Jesus. All those conditions suspected but not confirmed. The night she died, the attending was a guy who'd never seen her before. She was treated there for years. She has a chart. This chart? That's a choose-your-own-adventure. The records weren't great back then. The nurses, we were the records. I kept a copy. Thought it might come in handy one day. Munchausen's by proxy syndrome, MBP. That's what killed Marion? 
to mental illness in adults. Munchausen's is when you hurt yourself to get attention. You make yourself sick, everyone's at your beck and call. Munchausen's by proxy, on the other hand, is when you make someone else sick so you can care for them, so you can save them. Or try. Be seen trying. You're saying it, Dora has this? I'm saying people have this. Mostly mothers. Mothers who need to be worshipped, to be heroes. Nothing more laudable than a woman who puts all her energy into her sick child. You denied every request for information. I did, but the doctors told me to. Why didn't you tell the police? I did. And I lost my job at the hospital, after which I never heard another thing about it. So another uh, potential warning sign or indicator that factitious disorder imposed on another, that's a really long, we need an acronym for that, yeah. <laughs> um, but that this disorder might be something to consider would be if there's an unexplained worsening of symptoms or new symptoms that seem to correlate with the caregiver or you know whoever the perpetrator is, their visitation. Um, so we definitely see a little bit of this with um, Emma or maybe with Marion. We don't get as much of like a kind of in-depth of her interactions with mom, but like, you know, there seems to be a correlation between she takes the medicine and she's getting sicker and sicker. If mom didn't interact with her, which actually there's a period where she doesn't. Camille says, I'm really sick. Yep. You need to take care of me. And then Emma miraculously starts to get better. Yes, definitely. I think when Adora comes in with her little poison potion that all of the girls just get sicker. And like you mentioned, we see that Emma starts to feel better where Camille is actually feeling more ill. And that is something that we unfortunately do see in these families is if the attention is shifted to a different sibling, you can see kind of that shifting or variation in symptoms, um, which is, you know, very unfortunate. Um, and then one of the things I thought was interesting that we do see in sharp objects is that oftentimes one parent is really only or heavily involved in the care of the child. So we see this with Alan. You know, Adora is the one who is caring for the children, kind of you assume she's the one that had been going to the doctor's appointments and all of that, whereas Alan is kind of just like on the side. Um, and at one point he even makes a comment when he sees her making like the medication, like, you know, don't go overboard, like watch it. Um, so it seems like he has, like you mentioned with Jackie, again, like another adult individual who has some awareness and does nothing. And I think we see that even with the chief. It seems like there are people that had suspicions, um, but because of Adora's like status in the town or because of their relationship with her, really no one interjects. And it's really unfortunate because it is very hard to kind of intervene in these cases. Um, Dr. Fran alluded to this, but they're very rare. Um, and we do see them as instances of abuse. So, you know, this is someone who is harming a child. Um, this is a form of medical abuse. And so this is something that we want to intervene to help and protect the child. Um, but these kind of things can be very different, difficult to catch, and they can be very difficult to like kind of quote unquote prove um, or to like report really, um, just because of the nature of the deception involved. Oftentimes, like we talk about these families are jumping around to different doctors so as soon as a doctor kind of raises like a suspicion or ask a question the parent can usually get a vibe like okay this isn't going the way we want and they will head over to another doctor so it can be very very difficult to track and to treat yes for that reason right of like if someone is purposely being dece deceptive and you know wants to continue engaging in this behavior it's going to be very difficult one to identify it and two to get buy-in for trying to change this behavior and trying to treat and protect the child yes very true and because of those factors the prevalence of this is really unknown um, and this is likely due to those levels of deception and the reasons that we just talked about in the hospital setting it's estimated that about one percent of individuals meet criteria for this. Um, so uh, like Dr. Fran mentioned, I have some experience, I will say, with suspecting um, fictitious disorder imposed on another. There have been a couple of cases that I have been involved in or have um, been aware of where medical providers um, or I was on a team where we were a little bit concerned about certain behaviors, um, you know, like maybe parents not wanting providers to talk to their doctors that they had seen before, kind of seeing that this child had been in and out, kind of jumping around to different doctors, kind of this cluster of what we just discussed. So there have been some cases where there has been suspicion. Um, I have never worked with a family where there has actually been, you know, kind of like a case brought upon and investigated related to this, um, kind of because of the factors that we talked about. But I know there are some experts and professionals who really specialize in this and have worked with um, both people who have been diagnosed with this as well as the victims of this. 
Yeah. And we see the impact that this in combination with all the other things that we've talked about with Camille really impacts her. Um, and unfortunately, like Marion dies by it. Right. Yes. Um, so she is a victim to like the greatest extent. And then we also see the ripple effects on Camille as she copes with, you know, maybe knowing to some extent that some of this was going on, maybe being a victim of a victim of it herself when she was a child and then losing her sister as a result of this disease. And, you know, what's kind of unfortunate and scary is if Adora had stopped after Marion died, no, she would have never been caught, right? No one investigated it. No one looked into it. But she continues to do it with Emma and Camille. And so that's why she does get caught. And it seems like Camille was maybe not as aware. You know, she was also very young when her sister passed away. Um, but as an adult, she kind of starts putting the pieces together. Like the detective gives her like the files on her sister. Um, she talks to Jackie, who, like you mentioned, alludes to the fact that she does. She kind of suspected this as well. Um, so Camille finally realized, like, you know, my mom is doing this and I have to save Emma. Um, and I think your fact or your comment about the ripple is exactly true, right? We see Adora has a history of abuse and kind of her own trauma, um, maybe some other like difficulties we're not even aware of, and then she hurts her children. Um, Camille has a lot of different history with her own trauma and grief and difficulties, and she's harming herself. Um, and then the other big spoiler in the show is Emma. So Emma is a victim of this abuse as well, and we find out that she is in fact the killer, so kind of hurting others and, um, you know, kind of lashing out in that way but we could spend a whole wait wait Emma's the killer <laughs> yes Emma is the killer <laughs> and we could spend a whole episode discussing Emma and the murders and the other kind of facets of the show um, but we've talked about things a little more similar to that so we won't go into Emma today <laughs> Yeah, Emma is a fascinating character. They're all fascinating yes. characters. Mm -hmm. um, and I would like to interview them all um, <laughs> at some point and get a full history. Um, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say I would like to have them all as therapy clients. But if we did... Let's talk about what we might do with Camille mm -hmm. specifically. Um, so we see that Camille has a really difficult upbringing. We've alluded to that all throughout the episode. Um, she's in at least has a history of engaging in NSSI and other behaviors potentially to cope with avoidance and these difficult experiences that have happened and difficult emotions that come up as a result of, you know, not really processing everything that's happened to her. Um, so we wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about treatment that hypothetically would be given to someone with Camille's presentation um, with the big caveat that obviously we do not see any therapy in this TV show. No, um, which is, so unfortunate given just the presentations, the symptoms that we have discussed, like just alone, Camille losing her sister, that might have been a good time. Like they seem to be a family of means, like for them to like maybe have her see someone to help cope with the loss of her sister, right? But probably Adora was concerned that they would find out that she had murdered Marianne. So, you know, no treatment, which is just really unfortunate. The only slight mention of treatment is when we see she checks into that inpatient hospital program. Um, but as soon as she loses her roommate, she checks right out. So we really don't get um, any insight into much treatment in the show. And we've talked about this before, but typically when someone does have an inpatient stay, ideally they would have some kind of follow-up after. And we don't know, maybe Camille was offered to do outpatient follow-up services after her inpatient stay and she declined them or wasn't didn't have a good fit with the therapist or went for a while and it didn't resolve all the concerns that she had originally had come in with. So maybe she did go to therapy, but we don't see it. So what hypothetically would it look like? Um, my go-to for someone with Camille's presentation would be dialectical behavior therapy. So this is an evidence-based treatment developed by Marsha Linehan. It was originally developed to treat chronically suicidal individuals, specifically with borderline personality disorder. I'm not necessarily saying Camille meets criteria for that, although we probably could do a whole diagnosis bingo and Maybe she would, but we'll save that content for another episode. However, um, DBT or dialectical behavior therapy has been studied a lot in other populations um, and has been shown to be effective in treating other diagnoses like substance use, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, eating disorders, and NSSI. So given all the things that Camille is presenting with, um, this could potentially be a really good fit for her. I agree. And so there are four major components to DBT the first is individual therapy, which, which, 
which is what we typically talk about. That's kind of more like the one-on-one um, kind of therapist psycholo- or psychologist and the individual. Then there is skills coaching, which is oftentimes done in a group setting. So more like group therapy with a real focus on strategies and coping skills that you can use. Um, you've heard Dr. Fran and I often get mad at like movie and TV therapists when they're just like, you need new skills. And we're like, um, it's kind of your job to help with those skills. And so this is really diving into that piece. Um, then there is phone coaching. This is to help generalize the skills and the strategies that are being discussed kind of more in real time if something distressing occurs and they can get guidance in that way. And then lastly is consultation group, which is for the providers who meet and discuss with other professionals in a group setting. And you might also be wondering dialectical behavior therapy, like what do those words even mean? I know before I heard about DBT and really understood it, uh, the dialectical is kind of not a made up word, but in this context, it means something different. Um, And so dialectical here is thinking about a synthesis or an integration of two seemingly opposite things at the same time. One of the primary dialectics in DBT is this opposite, you know, relationship between acceptance and change. So Mm -hmm. we are asking people to change, obviously, as part of being in therapy. And at the same time, we are wanting them to kind of accept where they're at and accept the emotions that they're dealing with and the circumstances that they're in. Um, As a little side note, I will say a like sneaky hack way of identifying whether someone has been through DBT training or is a DBT oriented therapist, pay attention to how they say the word and it is like very common in discussing DBT dialectics, especially to talk about like acceptance and change Mm -hmm. or like saying a statement instead of saying, but the idea is to say and because these seemingly opposite things can be true at the same time. Um, and this is like an important focus for someone like Camille, who, you know, who has been through some difficult times, um, is engaging in some potentially, like we mentioned, like maladaptive strategies to help get through those, is realizing that maybe she has goals to to discover or use some more productive coping skills, and not judging herself for the potentially negative emotions that she's having, or the potentially maladaptive things that she's engaged in, in the past. It's kind of more about like, you know, recognizing that having goals for the future and not being judgmental about that. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say one of the big things that jumps out to me as a good fit for Camille, especially in the context of her family history, is the biosocial theory of DBT. And this is something that's explained with clients very early on in the DBT process um, and getting their kind of buy-in and understanding of this. That is the combination of the bio side, which is some kind of biological sensitivity. So Camille's mom describes that she has this temperament or that she was a bad child in quotation marks. Even from the beginning, you disobeyed. You wouldn't wouldn't eat like like you were punishing me for being born. There are some individuals that have a biological sensitivity to emotions or, you know, just respond differently to their environment. So that's the bio piece. And then the social piece being an invalidating environment. And an important distinction here is kind of similar to what we talked to actually in our um, To the Bone episode. The goal is not to blame the family or the environment necessarily, but to highlight that there's a mismatch between potentially in this situation, like the child and the parent or the environment that they're in that creates this um, difficult interaction between the two leading an individual to um, develop difficulties with like emotion regulation of if someone is chronically, you know, having difficulties with emotions and then being told like you're fine or it's not that big of a deal Mm -hmm. or somehow that emotion being invalidated, it creates this pattern of emotion dysregulation. And so kind of like we talked about the like main pieces of DBT, there are four specific like skills modules that we work through in DBT. Um, So the first one is kind of that piece we already briefly mentioned, but is more acceptance oriented. So in the acceptance oriented model, this is more like practicing things like mindfulness, which I know we've touched on in the past briefly, but the practice of being more aware and present in this one moment, kind of like we talked about, like some strategies to help not be so like judgmental or, you know, hard on yourself and kind of focusing on what your goals are. Um, and then also kind of focusing on learning ways to manage distress tolerance. So how to tolerate pain or negative emotions in difficult situations. Yeah, absolutely. So the Dr. Sam just talked about the two like acceptance oriented modules, and then there's also two change oriented modules. So we've are kind of like accepting that we have difficult emotions and we're developing tolerance 
to those distressing emotions through mindfulness practices. And then we're also working on improving different aspects. So for one of those, the um, modules interpersonal effectiveness. So this is working on interpersonal problems, how to, um, you know, manage self-respect in relationships, setting boundaries, interacting with others in a positive way, and then emotion regulation. So how to decrease vulnerability to painful emotions and change emotions when they need to be changed. And I will also add those four modules we just went over are primarily for the adult version of DBT. There's also an adolescent version of DBT, and that adds an additional module, which is focused on walking the middle path, which specifically actually has the parents come to all the skills training sessions. They learn the skills along with the adolescent. They do the same homework of practicing all the skills. And then this walking the middle path section is really focused on, you know, teenage and family challenges. How can we find this middle ground? between what I want and what you want, developing empathy, developing validation skills. Um, even though Camille's adult, I would like highly recommend drawing from some of these um, aspects of this module to work potentially if she wants to continue a relationship with her mom after this, that this would be something we would potentially go to. Yes. And I think it's important, like, as you mentioned, um, with that, um, the biosocial kind of therapy aspect of DBT, um, just because like with teenagers, parents are still such a major factor in their environment, right? So with adults, they may or may not have or they kind of have more choice in the way that they interact and how much they interact with their parents, right? But with adolescents, they're still very much entwined in that environment. So I think even more important, like you mentioned with Camille, or someone like Camille, because in Camille's situation, like her mom is in jail, and who knows what that's going to look like. Um, But I'm not laughing that she's in jail. I'm just laughing at the fact in the movie that she has kind of been framed. She committed one murder, but now has been framed for other murders. So now she's in prison. Um, But with Camille or someone like Camille, she would still benefit from help like learning these strategies with her family for sure. And I would say, you know, the biggest thing, like taking away from like what's portrayed in the TV show and how that might fit with DBT is that this treatment or other treatments like it have been shown to be really effective in working with individuals who have really significant mental health concerns, who are engaging in really significant NSSI or have really chronic suicidality in and out of inpatient hospitals, um, that these treatments have shown to be really effective in working with those individuals. It's not something that we can't kind of have a positive prognosis for. Um, And so if Camille got the, you know, even with this additional trauma of then basically adopting Amma and then finding out Amma's the murderer and then all the repercussions of that, there are, there is still light um, for Camille if that she's, if she's able to get the, you know, right help and support and treatment moving forward that she can kind of get help and, and improve. I agree. You know, I think with Camille, like she has been through so many traumatic events and we see that she really struggles to like tolerate distress, right? She gets very upset or she's like kind of very hypervigilant to the things that might be happening to her. But we look at what she's been through and just having more support and kind of guidance around how to manage that distress, I think she would do really well because we still see that she's trying to navigate and have like meaningful interpersonal relationships. Like we see that with the detective, we see that with her boss and his wife, you know, she's trying, she's trying to be successful in her job. She's trying to reconnect with her family, like, you know, with Emma, she means well, you know, wants to support Emma until she discovers that she is a killer. Um, So, you know, I think that there definitely could be positive outcomes for Camille if she engaged in this very effective treatment. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm excited to kind of wrap up our episode today, bringing back a segment we haven't done in a while, our Diagnosis Graveyard. Diagnosis Graveyard. And so today in our diagnosis graveyard is Munchausen syndrome by proxy, or as we hear it referred to all the time, Munchausen's by proxy. So Munchausen syndrome by proxy has actually never been listed in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, um, which is we've referred to the DSM a lot on this show. Um, it's never technically been in there as a clinically diagnosable personality or psychiatric disorder, which is pretty interesting to note. Yes. And actually, if you are just kind of like curious or want to do some fun reading, if this is like a topic that you're interested in, um, but this diagnosis was coined in 1977 by Professor Roy Meadow. 
Um, he kind of came up with the term Munchausen, Munchausen syndrome by proxy, and it was actually named after an individual who demonstrated like the symptoms or met criteria for just fictitious disorder or Munchausen's, um, and then later kind of you know uh, was extended to the by proxy. But it's kind of an interesting story of this man um, and kind of his presentation and what led to this kind of term. Um, so. That's where the term comes from. Um, and then fictitious disorder by proxy was first listed in the DSM-4 um, as an appendix topic. So really just kind of something that was being mentioned as like, you know, needs further study, but was still not recognized as a, an official clinical condition um, until 2013. That's when it, the American Psychiatric Association first decided um, to name this as a disorder and put it into the DSM. And that's where we get the fictitious disorder imposed on another. Yeah, I'm sitting here being like, how can you name a diagnosis after a client? Like, doesn't that break all of your HIPAA rules or your like confidentiality rules? So I don't even know if he was ever like a client. I think they just made it like based on like his like story. Yeah, like his tales, oh, okay. like kind okay. of like in that way. Um, but we can definitely bury Munchausen's by proxy. It was never really an official diagnosis. And it's still like, you know, in some we kind of hear the shift. I know we talked about it with dissociative identity disorder um, and multiple personality disorder. You have been hearing like a switch, I think, in popular media. They are moving towards DID. However, I have never heard a fictitious disorder imposed on another in a movie or TV show. They really are sticking to the Munchausens, but we are burying it on Freudian scripts. And if you want to sound very fancy and like you know what you're talking about, you can use these terms. <laughs> very true. Um, and as we shift away from the graveyard, Dr. Fran, what are your overall impressions of Sharp Objects? Ooh, um, so I like Jillian Flynn's books a lot. I will say I liked the book when I read it. I prefer the book to the show. I do think the acting was well done. I really like Amy Adams. I thought she did really well in this portrayal. And it definitely like keeps you on your toes. Like you want to know what happens, but it is very like dark and creepy and like hard to watch at times. So like, would I recommend it to other people? Like, probably people like Dr. Sam who also enjoy very dark, <laughs> twisted TV shows. <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Fran. <laughs> so I, what about you? Yeah, I agree. It is very dark and it is hard to watch at times. And um, certain episodes I watched with a friend and they would mention just how like, oh, I just don't like this show. I don't want to see the cutting. Like, it was a little too dark. You know, it's about children being murdered. Um, so the content is very difficult. Um, I liked the aspect of like, you know, small town crime, like whodunit kind of thing. Um, there were obviously a lot of potential twists with like finding out Adora had the fictitious disorder um, imposed on another, finding out Emma was the real killer, right? There are all these like kind of little twists along the way. Um, but I thought, honestly, I loved the acting. I thought Emma, the actress who plays Emma, like which I had not seen her, I think, in anything before that uh, show. I thought she did a great job. I really like Amy Adams. Um, Adora's character was done really well. I thought, and I love, <laughs> I love the actor that plays um, Detective Richard, or as I will forever call Dr. C, Dr. Castellano, for any Mindy Project fans out there. Um, but <laughs> I so I liked a lot of the acting. Um, but I thought that the show was kind of slow. Like, it, And I know it's described as like a slow burn, but it's a little too slow. Um, and I think that a lot of the things that they do depict, as we always see, especially like I think HBO, you know, visually it's well done. They're really crafting the story. But I do think it was a little like hyperbolic with like, you know, the the psychological concepts that we've discussed. And we kind of discussed the reasons why, but I thought it was a little like kind of slow and then a little too much at times. You're kind of bleeding in a little bit into our DSM-5, Diagnosing Shows and Movies. So for that one, I'm going to go with a two today. Um, I think just because of the nature, like I think that perhaps they could have brought attention to something that is really sensitive, um, that people don't like to discuss and can be kind of a secretive in nature, like we talked about with the non-suicidal self-injury. Like I think they could have brought attention to like a really serious topic in a bit more of a sensitive way. I think the way they did it was a little like too theatrical, right, for the screen, like with having her cut the words into her body and covering her whole body. Again, not to say that that can't be possible, but it is very uncommon and not what we typically see with that. Um, and I also think just um, the way that they portrayed the fictitious disorder imposed on another, it wasn't necessarily like 
so out there. But again, just I think because this is a topic like movies and shows love to cover and maybe don't always do it in the most uh, sensitive of ways. So for that, I'm going to give it a two. And we didn't see any treatment despite the severe um, psychopathology that we saw. So that's also very alarming. Um, And then it kind of did portray, you know, like, people with mental health issues as like violent or aggressive at times, um, which for the factitious disorder imposed on another we that obviously is a form of aggression and abuse, as we talked about. Um, it doesn't oftentimes lead to murder or death at all times. Um, but still, like, you know, I just thought it was a little too exaggerated. What about you, Dr. Fran? Yeah, I was also leaning towards a two. And some of it's hard because in some ways, some things were technically accurately portrayed in the absence of you know, seeing a lot of additional like therapy or like other interactions. But I totally agree that it seems like especially the self-harm behavior or the factitious disorder imposed on another or even Emma's psychopathology was really used almost as like a tool to like yeah. get a reaction out of the viewers rather than actually to draw attention to a serious mental health concern that individuals actually deal with. Um, so I think that makes it hard to really rate highly um, in terms of that, like there are tiny things that are like, oh, yeah, technically that mm-hmm. could happen or like technically that's true. But I would say overall, not a super accurate or positive portrayal of mental health. Yes. And you put it much more concisely what I was trying to uh, build up to. I agree um, with that. Um, all right. So that's it. That is a wrap for Sharp Objects. Um, Check out our social media. We have a couple of new exciting things. The first thing I want to highlight is our new Freudian Scripture Spotlight. So this month, we featured Dr. Ashley Teasdale, who is a pediatric psychologist. So go ahead and check out our social media to read more about her and what she does. Um, And this is just our attempt to highlight Freudian Script listeners who are mental health providers or researchers involved in the mental health field to kind of highlight what their roles are and help decrease the mental health stigma that we always talk about. Yeah, so if you want to be featured or if anyone you know wants to be featured or you want to nominate someone, um, you can slide into our DMs to uh, nominate them. I know that sounded really cheesy. Uh, (laughs) But do it. (laughs) So we also want to just highlight that we announced a new promotion last week. Um, So if you haven't – if you've missed that, go ahead and check out our social media accounts as well. We are giving away for free special merchandise, really cool stickers um, in exchange for just leaving us a review on one of our podcast platforms. So that can be Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever your um, podcast – hosting source of choice. And then just send us a screenshot. Again, DM us um, on any of our social platforms or you can email us as well and we will send you a free sticker of your choosing. Yeah. And there are more details on that on our social media too. So don't forget, check out all the social medias like we just talked about and then check out our website. We're going to have resources, a glossary of new terms for this session on sharp objects. And please let us know your thoughts on the show. We'd love to hear what questions you have about psychology, anything we talked about today, or any new movies and shows that you want us to put on the couch and break down next. And join us in April for an upcoming session or maybe two for Autism Awareness Month. And as always, please subscribe, rate, and review. And if you review now, you get stickers, so definitely do it. Time's up. See you next session. We'd like to thank our producer, Brandon, creative director, Eric, and webmaster, Don. That's a creepy one, isn't it? It just came to me.